Good morning, folks. Uh, my name is Phil, and I'm the assistant pastor of Moreland Road Church. It's um, in, in some ways a duty that's been weighing heavily on me, um, but it is my privilege to bring us God's word this morning from, from this part of Mark's gospel. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, please would you have mercy on us. And though your people Israel and all of humanity and so, so much of history, so many times in so many places have not had ears to hear your word or eyes to see or hearts to understand. Please, Lord, would you grant that to us now by your spirit that we may see the awesome glory of your son. And we ask it for the sake of his name. Amen. What do you see when you look in the mirror? What do you see when you look in the mirror? And how does that leave you feeling? Impressed? Thankful? Troubled? Discontent? Ashamed? What do you see when you look in the mirror? Here in verses 53 to 72, Mark holds up a mirror for all humanity, both enemies of Jesus and those who follow him. And what he shows us is deeply uncomfortable. That has made this sermon really hard for me to write. And it will be hard to listen to. But please bear with me. We won't see how stunning the good news of this passage is until we have felt the full force of the bad news. In this passage, Mark presents to us three different people or groups set in stark contrast to each other. The Jewish leaders, Peter and Jesus. I simply want to walk us through those contrasts so we will see how we and all humanity are represented in the first two groups and see Jesus by contrast in his unparalleled glory, faithfulness, mercy and love. So stick with me. Let's begin with the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, the 71 most respected and senior figures in Judaism in the first century. Of all people, they should have been the quickest to recognize Jesus's true identity when he came. Through Mark's gospel, Jesus displays a power over nature, disease, death, and the devil that only God could have. He displays that he has authority to forgive sin and to give definitive interpretations of the Old Testament law, which only God could do. 
and he deliberately turns up in Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill prophecy, showing that he is God's anointed king over Israel. But instead of coming to Jesus on their knees with fear and trembling, the members of the Sanhedrin scornfully march Jesus into their midst in chains like a common criminal. As guardians of Torah, the Jewish law, they shouldn't even have begun to entertain accusations against Jesus unless they were established by two or three witnesses. But they had already decided the verdict they wanted and they willingly resorted to false testimony to secure it. In this, they broke commandment number nine in the Ten Commandments. Even when they quoted something close to what Jesus actually said about the temple in verse 58, they distorted it and misrepresented his true meaning. And their accounts didn't agree, proving them to be fraudulent. Yet when Jesus spoke the truth in verse 62, they condemned him. Indeed, Jesus proclaimed the gospel to them in verse 62, warning them that they would soon see him raised to God's right hand, his kingdom advancing against his enemies. But instead of repenting, they resorted to violent mockery. And they accused Jesus of blasphemy for daring to suggest that he could be the Messiah. Because in their eyes, he was nothing but a poor carpenter from provincial Galilee. A dangerous and controversial upstart from outside of the establishment. Yet if anyone was in true danger of unforgivable blasphemy, it was the high priest and the Sanhedrin for persistently denying the testimony of the Holy Spirit through Jesus's words and miracles that he was indeed the Messiah. Now Mark isn't recording all this to make the Jewish leadership of Jesus's day look bad just because he and the early church were bitter towards them. This isn't anti-Semitism. Like a mirror, the members of the Sanhedrin show something counterintuitive, but true and deeply uncomfortable about all humanity. They show us that even the most religious people, even those with the greatest knowledge of God's word in the Bible, still harbor a profound hatred for God in their hearts. They may appear to love God, to have a deep reverence for him, displayed in meticulous obedience to rituals and rules. But like all fallen men and women, ever since our first ancestors, their hearts, like ours, have been poisoned with mistrust towards God. Their hearts, like ours, are filled with unbelief towards God's words and promises and extreme doubt 
about the goodness of his character. People will willingly accept a man-made conception of God when it fits their own desires. We will even obey a twisted, semi-biblical view of God and his commands if we think he'll give us what we want by it. But left to ourselves, we will never love God as he truly is as he reveals himself to be in Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Bible as a whole. In fact, left to our semi-natural fallen state, the more we learn of God's justice, his righteousness, his right demands upon our lives, the more we will hate him we hate him because our minds are so poisoned against him by sin and the devil's lies that we cannot imagine how his rule over this world, his laws, his righteousness and justice could possibly be born out of love and kindness towards us. We cannot imagine how they could possibly be meant for our good and flourishing. We only see him as a threat to our autonomy, to our desire to do exactly what we please without reference to him. And this is what happened with the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem in Jesus's day. When Jesus finally arrived in Jerusalem, the more they saw of him, the more they hated him. God was no longer at a safe distance, silent and bought off by the sacrificial system. They were no longer able to sustain their interpretation of God's law, by which they had exalted themselves and put others down through exacting but selective obedience. Jesus upset their cosy consensus as he cleared the temple of traders and shamed them through his teaching, and threatened the very seat of their power by foretelling the destruction of the temple. Jesus was in their midst and in their faces, exposing their hypocrisy, and they hated him. And that is like a mirror for us. Any genuine encounter with Jesus and his word will start to bring out in full force the hatred of God that hides in the hearts of even the most religious people. We see it just as clearly today in the way that biblical teaching on all sorts of things is met with increasingly vitriolic opposition in British society. Whether it is Jesus's claims to be divine and the only way to God or his teaching on sexuality, or on the value of unborn human lives. As soon as Jesus gets in the way of our convenience, of doing what we want, and of having God on our terms, if at all, he is met with fierce rejection. We see that today. And brothers and sisters, Magdalene Road Church, 
this isn't just a problem out there. This isn't even just a case of there, but for the grace of God go I. This is the suspicion, resentment, and hatred towards God that lingers in our own hearts. It lingers in our old sinful natures to the extent that they remain unchanged and unsubdued by the Holy Spirit. This is the flesh that battles against the Spirit. So we have no room to boast, no room for judgmentalism. As we read of what the Sanhedrin did to our Lord, we ourselves should be on our knees, begging for mercy for ourselves and for everyone around us. We should be praying that what Jesus, we, we should be praying that Jesus would rescue us and rescue us fully from this wretched blindness and hatefulness of the sinful nature. Each time we feel that familiar resentment rising up in ourselves, when Christ calls us to give up something for his sake, or to submit to him in a difficult command, or to suffer discomfort, it is a reminder to us that we are no better by nature. We should be on our knees begging for his mercy. And if you're listening and you're intrigued by Jesus, but you're not yet following him and you find that there is the same resistance rising in you, I'd encourage you in the same way. Pray and pray that he would show you mercy and change your heart, overcoming that resistance. Pray that he would help you to know deep down that he really is good and trustworthy. Pray that he would help you to see, as we continue in Mark's gospel, just how much he loves you. We cannot bring ourselves to see this. Now we move on to Peter and his denial of Jesus in verses 66 to 72. And again, he is like a mirror for us, particularly for those of us who follow Jesus, for believers. You may remember that Jesus prophesied in chapter 14 in verse 27, and he told his disciples that they would all fall away. They all protested that they would never do such a thing. And Peter was insistent. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, he said in verse 31. And here in verse 54, he lives up to his word better than the other disciples because he does follow Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest's palace. But all of that changes from verse 68. In his fear of suffering the same fate as Jesus, Peter gets more and more emphatic and public in denying his Lord, not once, not twice, but three times he denies Jesus. Even as the Sanhedrin are mockingly commanding Jesus to prophesy, as only the true Messiah could, 
Jesus's prophecy about Peter is proved true. While Peter's protestations of loyalty ring hollow and empty. Peter is a desperately sad spectacle. And he is painful to watch because it feels so close to home for so many of us. Just look at the stage directions as events unfold. Peter begins so close to Jesus in verse 54, almost in the thick of the action, close to the light. But he retreats steadily further away into the growing darkness. First to the gateway in verse 68 and finally out into the night in verse 72. Broken and full of remorse. Peter is also a shocking spectacle. And we are right if we cringe at verse 71. Jesus would have been perfectly justified if he had retaliated against his enemies, calling down curses on them. But he refrains in his mercy, in his patience, in his faithfulness to his father's will. Instead, Peter is the one who calls down curses in his desperation to distance himself from Jesus and to save his own skin. And it's not clear whether Peter is cursing himself. He may be invoking curses on himself, Old Testament style, as if to say, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I am lying. But there is no himself in the original to indicate that. No reflexive pronoun for the linguists among you. So, shockingly, Peter may have been cursing Jesus. We are meant to see ourselves reflected in the disciples and especially in Peter. For those of us who follow Jesus in our own strength. So for those of us who follow Jesus, they are a picture of what we are like, particularly when we try to follow him in our own strength. And can you see that that's what Peter is doing? He refused to listen to Jesus's great gracious warning when he told the disciples that they would all fall away. He trusted in himself and his own bravado rather than believing his Lord and God, who knew him best of all. He thought he was strong and sufficient. He didn't realise that our sinful human natures will always choose self-preservation over loyalty to God when it comes to a choice. In his brashness and his misplaced self-confidence, he didn't even take the precaution of concealing his face in the high priest's courtyard. He sat right by the fire in the light. And yet when it came to the test, he was so weak that he gave way to fear at the questioning of one lowly servant girl. Even while Jesus withstood the vitriol and the violence of the whole Sanhedrin and their guards. And once Peter had given in to sin the first time, 
it became easier and easier to be swept along by it. Brothers and sisters, isn't that our own experience too? Doesn't the example of Peter make our hearts sink and cringe with shame as we remember our own past cowardice? There is so much that we could learn from Peter's example. And we should certainly be warned of the folly of trusting in our own strength when we're approaching situations where we know our loyalties will be tested. And we should be exhorted by his example to daily prayer, perhaps even to regular fasting, that Jesus will supply the courage and strength we lack by his spirit. But for many of us, our hearts should be moved most of all to deeper humility. And this is where my heart has been led again and again through this week. There is nothing about us that makes us worthy or sufficient to follow Jesus. In ourselves, we are wretched like Peter. So instead of entertaining boastful, prideful notions that you or I might actually be quite good disciples, at least in comparison to others. Many of us need to be on our knees, like Peter in the end. We need to humble ourselves and acknowledge our wretchedness daily, confessing again and again our desperate need of forgiveness and help, confessing that Jesus alone is the only one who is worthy of our praise. And I don't know about you, but I know that in my case, a few more tears like Peter's would not go amiss. They would be entirely appropriate. But finally, there is hope, extraordinary hope here in Mark 14. Back in verses 27 to 31, Peter was so distracted with indignation that he missed Jesus's gracious promise in verse 28. After I have risen, Jesus said, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Do you see what that implies? In spite of all their failure, which Jesus understood far better than the disciples themselves, he would come back to them. He would not reject them. And in fact, it was for faithless disciples and hate-filled enemies, such as we've seen in Mark 14, that Jesus submitted to the Father's will to drink a cup of suffering, of wrath even, to pay our ransom and to take the punishment for our sins. So this is where we turn to Jesus. And let's see again the contrast between him and everyone else in verses 53 to 72. Jesus stands resolutely in the midst of his enemies while Peter retreats further and further from danger. Jesus sets his face like flint 
and does not hide his face from mocking and spitting, but becomes the suffering servant of the Lord, prophesied 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapters 49 to 53. Though he had done no violence, he submits to their violence, being beaten and disfigured, eventually beyond recognition, so that by his wounds we would be healed. Though all around Jesus speak twisted half-truths and outright lies, Jesus remains silent and submissive as a lamb led to slaughter. Again, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 7. Indeed, he does not need to dignify their accusations with an answer, because his enemies betray their own falsehood by the failure to make even their lies agree. By contrast, no deceit is found in his mouth, just like in Isaiah 53, verse 9. Because when Jesus does speak, it is nothing but the truth just as his miracles and teaching have proved all along. Indeed, while Peter is afraid to confess his truth, even to the high priest's slaves, Jesus is unafraid to make the good confession about his true identity, even to the high priest himself, in verse 62. He even makes it boldly and defiantly, and in doing so, he reveals that despite all appearances, he is the only one who is truly in control of the situation. Although he is chained and apparently defenseless, the Sanhedrin are at his mercy. This is because they can find no charge against him, which will stand in court before the governor. They are wholly reliant on Jesus to incriminate himself by speaking the truth. And so Jesus willingly brings upon himself his own death sentence. As Isaiah 53 verse 10 puts it, he submits to the Lord's will to be crushed, to make his life the offering for our sin. Though he foreknew all of his disciples' failures, he still submitted to die for their sakes and for ours. Though he experienced the blind hatred and rage of his own people, Israel, he still submitted to suffer in the place of many of them, all who would later repent and receive him. Do you see how Jesus alone, among all people, his friends and his enemies, is innocent, truthful, and absolutely faithful to his Father's will? And do you see how great his love is for fallen, blind, wretched creatures? that he would submit to die for us in spite of our treachery and faithlessness. As one of my favorite hymns puts it, here is love. Here in these pages of Mark's gospel, 
love vast as the ocean, loving kindness like a flood. And the only truly fitting response, I think, is humble, silent adoration and praise. And so I'm going to give us a minute now for that. And I'd really encourage you to find more than a minute later today to do more of the same. Lord Jesus, please help us today to have the humility to acknowledge our failure, our weakness, the wretchedness of our fallen natures. And help us to see more and more clearly the awesomeness of your love, the beauty of your innocence, the wonder of your faithful obedience. Lord, help us to love you more. You are worthy, you alone are worthy of all our praise. And we thank you. Amen. I'm going to hand over now to Ali, who is going to lead us uh, further in our prayers. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is always in control, always sovereign and always loving. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control and sovereign over our world today, that you reign on the throne and that you are Lord over all that happens now and in the future. We ask, Lord, that you would make us people who really believe this and trust in this day by day. Particularly, Lord, at this time of difficulty and hardship over the last year, where many of us have endured so difficult times, lonely times, tiring times and frustrated and confusing times. Lord, we thank you that we can trust you and that we can look to you as a light in the darkness of whatever we're facing. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is always loving. Thank you that you love us no matter what we have done, what we've said or thought, which is against your word. Thank you that you promise to love us now and in our days to come and that this love will never fail. Thank you, Lord, for this reminder today that although we may feel like Peter, those who disown you, 